Tim Bishop joined the Royal Navy as a pilot in 1987 on a career path to fly helicopters. Two days from being awarded his pilot's wings, he was withdrawn from the course and he decided to retrain as a navigator stroke mission commander and his final job in the military was as a flight instructor. After leaving the Royal Navy, he completed the US and UK PPLs. He had a brief career in commercial aviation in the UK before giving it up and moving into IT. He completed his paragliding CP at the Joint Services School in Wales, but then didn't start flying regularly until 2007 after moving to Iceland. He's been flying regularly ever since and has completed SIV stroke pilotage training in Annecy. He's not an expert on flight safety and doesn't claim to be, but he has a lot of training in it. After my recent accident, I've done a lot of soul-searching about safety and in this podcast, Tim and I discuss a range of aspects of paraglider training, attitude, human factors and the difference between paragliding and other branches of aviation. We don't mean to preach, but we recorded our discussion in the hope that it's useful to others. In the discussion, Tim talks about his homemade paraglider flight simulator. You can find links to pictures of it at the podcast page at www.theparaglider.com. Here Tim gives me some background information about himself and his knowledge of flight safety. Human factors in flight safety are like psychology or body language. If you never take the time to understand them, you're always going to be the victim of them. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? So few people actually understand what's going on around them when it comes to the human factors and the psychology and, and what is flight safety that that's kind of the key message from my point of view is that without the awareness then then people are going to be the victim of these things that they don't see around them uh, the main point i want to get across is that i'm a very inexperienced paraglider pilot i, I still count myself as a beginner I have, I have less than 80 hours and less than 200 flights and I'm still learning, and, and, and when I go to new places, or even new sites in Iceland or to new places, then I always tell people I'm a complete beginner, because that's the way I keep myself safe. I do, however, have an aviation background because of my time in the military, and I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on flight safety. However, I'm extremely enthusiastic about it, and I find it very interesting, mainly because of this hidden thing, because it's it's something that people are not aware of. And it's very important that people realize that, that I'm not setting myself up as an expert and I, I'm only speaking from within the context of my own experience in eight years of British military aviation and then um, a bit of civil aviation after that and then uh, a while drifting around in, in paragliding. I've been in, involved in the safety in the Icelandic paragliding scene. I've been involved at various levels. I, 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 I took an approach which was quite proactive at the start. And then I took a deliberate decision to, to step back because I felt that what I was doing wasn't effective, which was frustrating. But I realized that the national culture is very strongly of personal responsibility um, for, for better or for worse. There are obviously different cultures in different countries have different approaches to safety because of the different aspects of training mm. in Spain where I live it's very different to in Britain where I where I learned mm. you have the culture of personal responsibility and you've got the culture of blaming it somebody else and we've mm. now got the idea you know this business of people suing other people and everybody kind of going a bit mad about safety and, and advisories and things like that and 
having such an individualistic sport and one where you are up there on your own and nobody else can help you when it all goes wrong, you have to rely on your own skills or your own mm. knowledge mm. And, and the cultural background that we come with has a huge bearing on safety. Also, one of the things I'm particularly aware of is that when I think back over my history, obviously I uh, I grew up in the UK. Then I went into the British military, and I was in I was in British military aviation for eight years. That in itself is a very specific environment and a very specific culture that goes with it. Then I was in civil aviation in the UK for a short while, uh, and then I moved to Iceland. And they're all very very different environments. Um, I'm almost reluctant to call it to say from the point of view of flight safety, but I'm I'm going to say from the point of view of attitudes towards aviation, if you if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I see as, as, as one of the biggest sort of challenges or problems with respect to safety is that people hear the words flight safety and they seem to think that it's an optional bolt on to the, to the whole aspect of having fun and flying and, and chilling out and all the rest of it. And very few people seem to understand that it's actually completely unavoidable. As soon as you clip into the wing, you're involved in, in flight safety. But that, actually, that's not true. If you turn up at a flying site, you're involved in flight safety because somebody might ask you questions or there might be an accident. And it actually goes beyond that. It, all you have to do is, is talk to a paraglider pilot or be in a conversation with a paraglider pilot and you're involved with flight safety because you could be influenced by what they're saying. You could influence them by the things that you say and your attitudes that you come across with. So it's, I mean, it's like the air we breathe. You just can't avoid it. Next, our discussion went to talking about how people generally deal with discussions on safety and paragliding, particularly on discussion forums and social media. Mm. The amount of time when, if you say something about safety or if you question somebody else's decision, mm. you're, a, you're either a, an armchair critic or you're a killjoy. I know. And so often people are stifled. Mm. And it's not just that it's not a one to one conversation on a forum. There, there might be a thousand other people watching it. And what message are you giving when mm. you stifle that kind of discussion about safety? Mm. But that could that actually could potentially really help somebody, a, a new pilot. And this sort of saying, oh, yeah, you know, you're just being a killjoy is making so many people unsafe. I know. I know. That, that attitude. This is one of my biggest problems as well. For many reasons, this is one of the biggest things that, that, that bothers me about paragliding. And I, I put way too many processor cycles into trying to work out why it's like that. And I think the answer as to why paragliding is like that as a sport is a, is a blend of, of, of reasons. Firstly, we're a very young sport. Secondly, a lot of people that, that get involved do it from the point of view of individualism and, and, and the freedom. So that, that that sort of rebellious streak comes in. And thirdly, as a form of aviation, which is what we are, we're incredibly loosely regulated. I, I suppose, I don't know, maybe it's safe to say that we're one of the most loosely regulated forms of aviation in the world. Because if you think about what it takes to get into the into the air... I mean, there are some places in the world where you actually don't need anything at all. Um, in Iceland, for example, and I'm pretty sure there are other countries like this, there's no particular requirement of a license or anything. Yeah, some countries are much, much more regulated. Whether it makes the pilots actually safer or not, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I'd like to see the stats about this. I mean, the the data set for, for, for Icelandic flying is too small to get any real sort of statistical credibility out of it. 
So I can't draw any conclusions, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's been a lot of conversation about this on 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 the forums of uh, as to you know just how safe or unsafe is paragliding. And my take on this is is that the jury's still out. If you say right, okay, an EMBA glider mm. is safe. Mm. If flown in calm conditions with constant laminar wind of mm. ten miles an hour, mm. and you fly straight down to the bottom, it's safe. Mm-hmm. If you take a paragliding accident and you look at the amount of variables that are in it, mm. it's not like in cars where you mm. can say, okay, this car has got a five-star rating and we've crashed it 60 times in controlled conditions and mm. it always behaves like this and the weak points are there, you know, where you've actually got the ability to do standard testing. Exactly. We don't really have that in, in paragliding. Yeah, exactly. The other thing is that it, it, it's not just about the wing. The wing is, what are going to be the safety outcomes of any particular flight, the wing is just one pull, one small part of, of of a much bigger system. If we if we say that the wings are safe, flown in light conditions, no other factors, then really the only difference is the thing dangling underneath them and the conditions that they're flown in. And and those two are so massively variable. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. factors because, and even even from one day to the next, myself. It depends on how much sleep I've had and how much other things are going on in my head and two sunny days aren't the same, two windy days aren't the same, two sights aren't the same. I don't really know how you would be able to have statistics that would – you just can't compare like for like. No, it's not possible. possible. Particularly because the pilots that are involved in in paragliding uh, globally are a complete unknown factor, unlike military aviation where – to become a pilot in, in the military, particularly the British military, firstly, the pilot has to go through um, some pretty strict filtering tests to even be allowed to apply to the military. And it's something like only 25, 30% that pass at that stage. Then you get into your flight training and, and the dropout rate through flight training is very, very high. So what that means is that by the time you, you get onto a frontline squadron, you can be relatively sure that there's a fairly high degree of uh, a sort of homogeneity amongst the, the the pilots, and also that there is a baseline standard of professionalism amongst the pilots. And in fact, there are parts of, of military aviation which are called the standards organisations. There are there are specific squadrons which have no other job other than maintaining flight standards, and and that only partially exists uh, in the paragliding world. It's it's because you don't have quality control on the input side of of the pilot pipeline for paragliding, if you like that the stats are going to be sort of fluffy at best. Ironically, something that happened in my past, which has been a bit of an albatross for me, qualifies me quite well to talk about flight safety. I joined the Royal Navy as a pilot, and it was was just a life ambition. It was something I always wanted to do. And I got to within two days of being awarded my pilot's wings, which most people consider to be securing your future. And then I got kicked off the course. I failed the pilot training course, and it, it, well, it was unpleasant to say the least. It had a fairly profound effect on me. And the reasons why I got kicked off the course is that my airmanship was not up to standard. I could fly the aircraft quite nicely, and I was a smooth pilot and all the rest of it. But I just had nowhere near enough maturity and understanding and... I didn't at all appreciate the gravity of the situations that I was in. My my airmanship was just way, way below the standard that was required for that stage. So mercifully, they did throw me off the course. If they hadn't, I would have ended up killing myself and my passengers. 
and at that point, I had a choice of either basically leaving the Royal Navy or retraining as what's called an observer, who is a navigator slash mission commander. So I, I did that, which meant I'd still be flying, albeit in, in the back seat, and learnt my lesson rather quickly and went on to win the best student prize and then ended up being a, a flight instructor for the whole observer thing. So I saw both sides of it. I realized pretty quickly what I'd done wrong. So ironically, something that, you know, I consider it to be a black mark on my history has actually qualified me quite well to comment about things like this. In terms of safety and, and mm. kind of our attitude to paragliding safety, mm. do you think we have a more or less a fair attitude towards it because we're not taking passengers? We're not responsible for other people? Oh, good question. The short answer is yes. Because certainly amongst the pilots that I've known, they see paragliding as a very individualistic sport. And a lot of them don't differentiate it very much from other things like, for example, mountain biking or snowboarding. And one of the attitudes that I wish I could, I could disperse is the attitude that when I'm in the air, I'm doing my own thing, I'm completely free. And anything that an external party tries to tries to interfere with or tries to tries to discuss with them with respect to the safety it is unwelcome to them because they see it as interference rather than helpful assistance. So I think, I think yeah, the short answer is, is, is yes. Tell me more then about military flight safety uh -huh. culture. One of the most significant differences between military flight safety and flight safety in, in the paragliding world is that it's a part of the culture. You see it visibly everywhere that you go within the military. So if you go into a squadron building, there are posters and stickers all over the place uh, about flight safety. There are reminder posters. And, for example, the maintenance crews should take their wedding rings off and any, any jewellery off before they work on the aircraft. And people fail to do this sometimes and they get their fingers ripped off. So what they'll do is they'll take a picture of a, of a disembodied finger and blow it up to sort of A0 size and post that right next to the maintenance station to remind everybody that you should take your, your, your wedding ring off, otherwise you get your finger ripped off. And there's things like that all over the place. Uh, there are regular flight safety meetings. There are uh, appointed flight safety officers. And it's just there. It's prevalent. It's around you all the time. Now, the other part of it is that all the way through training – it's probably the most important factor. You'll, you'll be kicked off a course faster for safety issues than you will for not meeting the objectives of the course. And in fact, if you go through the, through the syllabi, then one of the biggest things is in there is that everything that you do must be done in a safe manner. Otherwise, if you're not safe, you're, you're not anything. You simply don't exist. And you know, quite apart from the fact that the, the military's lost a very expensive um, asset. So it's there from, from day one. And the difference with paragliding training is that you can be thrown off the course and people do regularly get thrown off the course in, in fairly high uh, numbers for, for, for not meeting the standard. I am not aware, obviously my information is, is not complete, but I'm not aware of many people being thrown off um, paragliding training courses for not meeting the standard. And that raises I the am. question as, as why? <laughs> no, I am. I, really? I know, yeah, yeah, I know quite a few people well that's encouraging I mean, 
Well, to be fair, the reason why, <laughs> yeah, but the reason why I heard about them is then they went to a different school and, yes, exactly. you know, or they went to um, non, non-VHPA, non yes, non-approved schools, basically, um, or they just decided to self-train for the rest of the, or just kind of say, oh, sod it, I'll just do it myself. Exactly. And so they, they have actually then come into the sport, but but I do know people who are actually failed in school that they, instructors just say, I'm sorry. I can't take the responsibility to give you a, your your qualification because you will kill yourself or you will kill somebody else and I can't have it on my conscience. A couple of other things about the military is that in peacetime or, or, or non-operational scenarios, then almost all the flying that military aviators do is training. Certainly when I was on a frontline squadron, then when I wasn't doing search and rescue, probably 95% of my flights were training flights. So we are constantly training, constantly reappraising, constantly seeing if we meet the standards and constantly learning new things as well. Interestingly, even in spite of that, it's still not perfect. For example, I know of ooh, what, a handful of uh, Royal Navy aviators that killed themselves by crashing their helicopters in stupid circumstances. I know of um, a couple of jet pilots that that kill themselves by um, crashing in, in stupid circumstances, uh, quite often when they're drunk, interestingly. And in my last squadron, there was, what, there were, I think, at least two pilots uh, with whom I was very reluctant to fly because they were simply unsafe. Most people would have said that they were very experienced and very capable pilots because they were, in fact, you know, they had a lot of flight hours. But their attitude, in my opinion, was completely wrong. Um, they were just not safe. The difference between flying powered aircraft and fly, flying um, certainly paragliders mm. is that you've got the benefit of flight simulators. Yes. And so you can train in safe environment because yep. nothing can happen to you other than uh, you crash on the screen. And yep. of course, in, on a paraglider, to, you just can't simulate it other than in the air. So your only training is actually in the medium. Well, I may beg to differ, actually. Okay, right. Respect. I've got a simulator <laughs> in my garage. Okay. I think you can do a great deal of paragliding training and simulation on the ground. And in fact, you can do an awful lot of stuff without needing to get airborne. For example, that's the whole raison d'etre behind uh, ground handling. Y yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, in, in, in the simulator that I have, because it's built on a set of proper rises, I connect my speed bar, I can, I can practice my weight shift, I can practice my speed bar technique, I can do big ears, I can do beeline stalls, even just simple stuff like what I would call procedural training. So... At the start of the season, I'll go out to the garage, get into my harness in slow time, put my helmet and my gloves on, make sure I haven't missed anything from the pre-flight, strap into the simulator. I can simulate launches in it, and the launch technique is quite useful to simulate in there. And then I'll just sit there, <laughs> quite happy that nobody's watching me because I probably look like a bloody idiot hanging from the garage roof, and, and pretend that I'm flying. And, and for me, it's incredibly valuable. So... No, it doesn't appear obvious that there are simulators in paragliding, but yes, they are there. The question is, why are they not used more? And most people, when they hear about things like this, are very surprised. This is when we get back to the to the cultural issues around, uh, I'm not just going to call it safety, I would call it professionalism or, or quality in paragliding training. SIV courses. It's really great that they're becoming so massively popular now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's kind of... It's starting to be seen as something that you have to do. 
you know, you, I mean, you're not forced to, not, but and of course not just once. I mean, we need to get away from the attitude where an SIV course is is a do it once, tick in the box, and never repeat it type exercise. It should be something that people do as often as they can. Um, and okay, I know it's cost prohibitive for a lot of people, and that's understandable. Well, to be honest, it's one of the things that I really want to start preaching to people about is that just because you've done one SIV course doesn't make you a safe pilot. You know, I it makes you more dangerous. Exactly. I had it in my head that if I was going to have a big accident, it would be because I went flying in very thermic conditions in places like Spain. Mm. And then I would have this massive cascade event mm. and I would freeze and I wouldn't be able to recover it. And if I was lucky, I'd throw my chute and then I'd land safely and I'd be fine. Yeah. That was in my I head. Yeah. That was going to be my accident. And of course, I had the most pathetic top to bottom. Mm. What could possibly go wrong? Oh, shit, I broke my back accident. You know that. <laughs> that and just you, wasn't on my my radar of, and, of an accident you know, that I would why? have. And you know why that is? There's an yeah, old expression. Well, there's an old expression amongst fighter pilots: the missile that shoots you down is the one that you didn't see. Yeah, absolutely right. So keep your head on a on a swivel all the time. This is again one of the one of the, you know the big pillars of flight safety for me. It's attitude. It's not allowing the complacency to build up, and it's constantly having just that healthy level of paranoia. It's like when you're pulling out of a junction in your car. Don't just look once, look twice, move your head, move, you know, look three times. It's, it's having just the right level of paranoia to keep you safe, but not enough to, to actually affect your performance, you know, in a negative way. Um, mm. And that, you know, that, I'm sure that's what happened to you as well. You just simply were not expecting it. Well, I mean, I've said that my accident was caused by complacency and overconfidence. Mm. You know, I, I was just so confident that I can get into any small field. It's not a problem. Mm. And then I missed it by a meter. <laughs> you know, as soon as you think you're shit hot, yes. that's when you had a crash. Exactly. Risk because compensation. You, you feel infallible. Yes. Because you think you're so brilliant, what could possibly go wrong? And exactly. that's when you take your fear eye off the ball, and that's when you're the most dangerous. It's the old and thing I about just, pride comes before the fall. It's completely true. Yep. Let's get back to the military then, because it's completely seeped in safety culture. And you're simulating and practicing all the time, whether in, in actual flight or in simulators or whatever. Tell me more about the lessons that you've learned from your military training that are applicable to paragliding safety. The first one is the one we've just been discussing, is that one of your greatest enemies is complacency. And one of the things that surprised me when I started learning more about, about flight safety in the military is that it felt like a surprisingly, what's the word to use, soft or fluffy subject, because it's all about what the civilians call human factors. It's all about the psychology of aviation and the way that the human mind works when you get it off the ground. One of the biggest lessons is this. We're not made to fly. As a creature, we're evolved to be on the ground. And that means that as soon as you get us off the ground, we we're really not optimized for that environment at all. We're severely limited. Our bodies are not made for it. Our minds are not made for it. And that, that means that to operate in that environment, we have to be bloody careful. For example, I did a first aid course the other day, and they tell me that it's generally accepted that in, in the ER, anybody who turns up and has fallen off something and it's more than three meters high, that's considered to be a life-threatening fall. You know, our bodies are not designed to be more than more than three meters off the ground and, and survive the fall. And that's got pretty serious implications when it comes to paragliding. So 
in the human factors training, what they explain to you is quite how crap we are at being airborne. Our, our brains will fool us, our eyes will fool us, our inner ear fools us, our sense of balance is completely wrong. We completely misinterpret all, all the stimuli that come to us and, and we're really weak and we're really fallible. And to overcome that and to keep control of the situation, you need a, a great deal of training and you also need, you need understanding and more than anything else, you need humility. And that, that's the bit, I think, that is missing in most of the cases of, of, of flight safety problems. It's humility. It's, the, it's, it's people's arrogance or absence of humility that, that, that stops them developing in a safe direction. Definitely. I, I totally agree. <laughs> and that ties in again with complacency and overconfidence. Well, actually, overconfidence. That lack yeah. of humility is overconfidence. Even if you don't think of yourself as overconfident, yes. if, you, if you lack even the tiniest bit of humility, you're already overconfident. Exactly. And people, people don't understand that uh, when you get airborne, you're in an alien environment and you're basically on borrowed time. All the, all the time when your feet are off the ground you're on borrowed time. It's a bit like scuba diving. Like when, you know, when you go scuba diving, it's very obvious that you're in an, or a, an alien environment because you need all this equipment, you need air to breathe and you obviously can't stay down there forever. And, you know, most divers should remember all the stuff about the bends and why you can't do certain things while you're in the water. But because the environment is different, because the air is invisible and because it is so apparently effortless to go paragliding, people seem to not realise that when you strap on a wing and get airborne, you're stepping into a very alien environment. And on top of that, it's invisible as well. So how can we get safety message out to people more effectively? This is what I call the horse to water problem. You know, the people, mm -hmm. the, the, the people that really need the help won't be listening to this. Like, like you know, I do these, these reserve repacking events. I, I run them here and I publish mm -hmm. them and it's completely free. It doesn't cost anything, blah, 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 blah. And it's still only probably less than half of the pilots that turn up and get their reserves repacked. So a bunch of people aren't getting it done, even though it's free. And, you know, it's this, it's this sort of paradox. The people, the people who need it uh, won't turn up on their own initiative. That's, I suppose that's one of the big differences between a military environment and a, and a, civili a civilian environment. The civilians have got free will, whereas the military people will be and, and, and are compelled to do certain things that experience has shown it, uh, are very important. I mean, in other areas where you've got a very, very strong safety culture, I don't know, oil rigs comes to mind, mm. you know, that the consequence of not turning up for a safety briefing is that you get sacked. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. you lose your income and your livelihood and that's it. Whereas exactly. on paragliding, you don't turn up, so what? <laughs> exactly. And people, and people are not making that connection between the resources that are being given to them and the consequences of not taking advantage of them. And this is, this is down to the whole thing about risk homeostasis and, and the psychology because they don't, because there is an absence of connect with them. In other words, they've not been, or they've not yet been involved in an incident or an accident as a result of their, their failure to take the message. Because that's not happened to them yet, they understandably don't perceive that there's a problem. So they think, well, why do I need to go to a safety briefing? I, I, ha I haven't crashed. Mm. which it's understandable for people who've never been taught about how the mind works with respect to things like this. But it's not correct. It's not the correct approach. And that leads us to the big question about how do you fix that? I, I have some ideas about that, but, but most of it is still a huge question mark in my mind. Okay, so give us your thoughts on, on how to <sighs> not scare people off the safety message. Well, it's pretty 
clear as as you mentioned you know in in, in different environments and different cultures you you see different levels of receptiveness to, to intervention or help everything from yeah thanks very much to just get lost i'm not interested and they'll they'll take it a, as an insult or, or an offense to their manliness or whatever one of my favorite tricks that brian Steele told me is to use what i call the stealth approach in other words organize an event in the club which is titled performance flying or how to achieve a cross-country record or whatever whatever you do don't call it a safety briefing make it about anything except safety you can make it look really gung-ho to catch all the gung-ho people if you want and then once you've got them in the room they're a captive audience and then you can very discreetly drip feed the safety messages into them which i quite like it's underhand but it's underhand with a good motive so i think it's okay one of the ones which exists in the military and exists in civil aviation, which I believe is one of the most powerful things, is an anonymous reporting system where the aviation authority has channels through which anybody can anonymously report incidents or accidents. They can give as much detail or as little as they want, and then they will take action on that because it's, it's been shown that if people don't feel like they're going to personally suffer from blowing the whistle on something, then they're more likely to blow the whistle or seek help. So that's really good. Then the other things here are leading by example. I mean, I try to do this. Like I said, I'm not perfect, but I very much try to, to lead by example in terms of safety. I mean, simple things like, for example, as soon as I land, I'll ball the wing up and get off the landing field. As soon as I get to the takeoff, I'll put my helmet on and I'll, I'll like, for example, I'll never ground handle without my gloves or my or my helmet and things like that. But again, it's passive, so it's only partially effective. In mm. hang gliding, there's a slightly different safety culture because you have to have a, a sequential rigging procedure because if you just throw it together and you're chatting to your mates while you do it and you're not really paying much attention, on a paraglider, you can get away with that quite a lot of the time. And so you're not really taught not very effectively taught setting up sequence whereas in in hang gliding you're forced to because the thing won't assemble otherwise and i think a lot of the accidents that have got to do with kit that can actually be directly attributed to kit failure are do to do with um, poor maintenance and poor setting up mm. and the maintenance on a hang glider you check everything as you rig it and you check everything as you de-rig it but you also have a a direct financial impact every time you have an accident mm. normally because you break an upright and damn that's another 80 quid mm. you know? eventually you know you try and learn to to land properly because you spent that much money the financial loss eventually makes you learn to do it properly mm. so that you don't break your arm mm. basically so you you have a better incentive and because of that it it makes the pilots talk to each other in a different way. There is a far greater safety culture in hang gliding than there is in paragliding. Right. And the club where I learned to hang glide with, they've had this culture for an awful long time and it's been taken into their paragliding side of the club because so many of the ex-hang glider pilots have become paragliders and they have a snuff list. <laughs> so the older um, pilots all they you know it just happens when they're para waiting or something but they have a wee chat about you know who's just joined the snuff list and it's the pilots that they think are going to really hurt themselves mm. and when you know about the existence of that snuff list you think i really don't want to be on it why do they think that i'm a candidate 
for having a big accident or you're having an accident. Mm. Now, as you say, it's the people who need to know that they're on this list are often the last people to hear because nobody likes to be a bearer of bad news. But it often gets out and somebody will say, hey, you'll never guess what, I heard so-and-so saying that you're on the snuff list. (laughs) And when you hear that, it really makes you prick up your ears. Mm. And I think if the club elders in every club had a snuff list that the word got round, Mm. even those who didn't think it applied to them might take a bit more notice. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's a great idea. Uh, Whether or not I can get it through in my local place, I don't know, but I think it's a great idea. Well, it it should never be anything official. You know, Mm. there shouldn't be like, we will meet every two months and we will write a list of (laughs) names and we will pin it (laughs) to the gate. But, you know, just like I say, it just happens where the people who've been doing it for a long time just mm. it, like I say it was something that just occurred naturally in this particular club in Britain yeah I think it's um, a brilliant idea yeah it's just one of those things that happened and I think it's a good thing I, I think some people might say it's horrendous that that should happen but actually if it keeps one person safe because they they got that wake-up call then it's worth doing and the other thing really important to mention just in passing is that not very many other countries have this, but certainly in Britain, we've got a really great coaching culture. Yes, yeah, it's something to be proud of. It is, and you know, if if that could be rolled out to other countries, that would be fantastic. When I talk to people, say in Spain, and I explain to them that I'm a, a coach in Britain, they're like, "Wow, you mean okay. there's like people who look after other people <laughs> who are low airtime and help yeah. them and explain things to them?" And wow, yeah. that that'd be really. And those people are trained. There are faults with it. You know, I'm not saying it's the perfect system, but it's but better than a lot of other countries have got. This, this is the thing about flight safety. It's not about perfection. It's not about aiming for a state where everything is 100%. It's, it, this is the whole attitude thing. It's about admitting to ourselves that we are not perfect. We are fundamentally not perfect objects, humans. Then when we put ourselves into the air, we're presenting even greater opportunities to ourselves to be imperfect. It's about striving for constant improvement. It's about looking back at every flight and saying, okay, yeah, that was great fun. Is there anything I could have done better? Or what mistakes do I make? Or all these sorts of things. That's that's one of the key things. And that's the good thing. Personally, when I think about aiming at perfection, that just feels that just feels unachievable to me. It feels like a huge, great, unachievable challenge. When I allow myself to say, I'm just going to try to, to improve incrementally, just try to make each flight slightly better than the last one, that feels really easy to do, which is nice. Yeah, but also, I mean, I think if you talk to most pilots that you would consider to have achieved near perfection Mm. would say to you that they didn't get there without lots of near misses and without Mm. lots and lots of time and effort. Mm -hmm. But they've just put in the training and they've put in the practice and Mm. they've ground handled forever and they've done lots of SIV courses and they've they've made themselves safe. They weren't born safe, they made themselves safe. Exactly. I remember going to a safety talk by an ex-British team pilot Mm. who said that one of the things he did to keep himself safe is once a year or once every, twice a year, Mm. he would fly without a parachute. Mm, Just to remind himself that you you should never think, oh, I've got a parachute, I'll be all right. Yeah, that's a brilliant you idea know. because what you're doing by doing that, you're switching, you're deliberately switching off the risk homeostasis. It's like having a car with a traction control system or ABS and deliberately disabling it because the science around risk homeostasis in other environments is now very well established. It's not debated. 
it's not particularly well promulgated, which is a problem. That, that, that's where the thing about uh, the, the clubs and the preaching and, and the helping and the encouraging, that's where that all comes in. Because understanding how risk homeostasis works doesn't come naturally to everybody. But doing this is a brilliant idea because you're forcing yourself to override the risk homeostasis. In fact, I think I might try it myself. Can you just explain what risk homeostasis is? My understanding of risk homeostasis in simple terms in this is this. It's the way in which our understanding of the risks that we're taking, those understandings, they go wrong according to the environment that we're in. And it, the best way to think of this is, is the automatic braking system in cars, the ABS system that helps you brake, or airbags, for example. Now, it's been clearly shown that when drivers have these safety aids available in other words if they're driving um, a car with abs and they can see that they've got an airbag in front of them they will actually become involved in more accidents because they feel safer and that's risk homeostasis it's, it's, it's the it's, it's the separation between what you think the risk is and what the risk actually is and the example i've given there is to do with the physical equipment around you in the car. But the other example, which really relates to paragliding, is what I would call built-up uh, risk homeostasis. And that's what happens when you try a dodgy top landing and you think, ah, oh, it's a bit dodgy, but I'll try it. And you get away with it and you think, oh, that's fine. You go flying again and you look at the same top landing. And because you did it before successfully, it feels less dodgy now. When in fact, the reality is... It's no less dangerous than the last time you did it. If it was a sketchy top landing first time, it's still a sketchy top landing now. And every time you do it, it doesn't get any less sketchy. It just feels less dangerous because you've pulled it off many, many times. The unfortunate thing is that if you know that you're doing something that's just a little bit dangerous like that and you pull it off, what we get from that is a buzz of excitement. And that's the problem. It's a bit like when you, um, la you know, you're able to land in small fields all the time, and then you just expect to get away with it, and then you go splat <laughs> like I did. <laughs> so, it's, yes. what, what we're back to is, is we're back to thinking about um, basically how rubbish humans are, because our <laughs> mind, our mind plays tricks on us. We get overconfident, and we think, oh yeah, great, I, I can do it all the time, when in fact we're not understanding the risks right. That's what risk homeostasis is. Well, I was going to say, in, you know, when you were giving the example of, of an ABS or an mm. airbag that, you know, that's to do with the equipment that you surround mm. yourself with. I think, you know, the same example would apply to you think you've done an SIV course, safe as houses. What could exactly. possibly go wrong? Exactly. You know, that's, so that that's your, your attitude can be this, you, it can be as yeah, dangerous in that sense as, as surrounding yourself with kit that supposedly makes you safer. Mm. Mm. Some people dismiss the idea of accident analysis and flight safety because they think shit happens. I hear people use the word accident way too much. I personally use the word incident because I firmly believe that an awful lot of, of, of the things that people call accidents were not accidents at all. They were foreseeable. They were predictable. There are clear there are clear factors that went into it. There is a clear chain of events and it could have been avoided. And because it was predictable and it could have been avoided, that means it wasn't an accident. It wasn't like you just got hit, got hit by lightning or, or a freak storm turned up or something like that. It was avoidable. So this whole thing about shit happens, 
is actually, in my opinion, a very dangerous attitude because when you start to adopt that way of thinking, you're allowing yourself to not be as critical over things that happen or you're allowing yourself to not do as much analysis as you should do. You know, there is a logical route to that reasoning, and it's a it's a relatively sound logical deduction to get to that that place as well. And 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 it goes like this: if a pilot turns up on a hilltop site and it, and it's it's top end for the wind, to a casual observer fifty yards away, you don't know what what how experienced the pilot is, and and you, and you don't know how often this guy's ground handled in those conditions before, and 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 you don't know what his attitude is. It may well be the case that he's an extremely experienced pilot and he has a great deal of experience flying in or ground handling and flying in top end conditions. And he thinks to himself, he, he doesn't think, oh, yeah, whatever, this is fine, I'll go for it. He might be thinking to himself, OK, this is top end ish. I've done it a few times before. I know all the techniques to use here. I'm going to do X, Y and Z because it's going to be strong when the wind comes up. So I'll run towards, I'll do blah, blah, blah. I'll do all the great techniques. He then tries that. And as he pulls the wing up, he trips over a divot in the ground or he hits a damp patch of uh, of the grass and slips and gets dragged. Now, that's bad luck because he made an informed decision in known circumstances in full awareness of what he's doing. And then an objective ca- danger came along and tripped him up. That's the logical route to saying that the problem is bad luck. But the problem with looking at it that way is that it assumes that anybody who gets dragged is a good enough pilot to have made a conscious, well-informed decision that they were going to give it a go in those top-end conditions anyway. There is also a spectrum of skill. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, Very I broad. don't think... Yeah, incredibly. I mean, you can't really say that just because you've got 6,000 flights and 20,000 hours, mm-hmm. you're automatically safe because... It means nothing. You're actually it, more dangerous. Well, to be honest, I'm sure that there's... People that you fly with in your club that have only got 20 hours are much, much, much safer at taking off in very strong winds mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. somebody who's got 6,000 hours in the Alps. Yeah, completely agree. Completely so agree. somebody from the Alps might come to Iceland and go, they're all mad. Yes. You know, they'll take off. They're completely you know, risk unaware. They have no idea. And mm-hmm. you, that's just what you're used to. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and that's what you're skilled at. Mm-hmm. And those that same pilot from Iceland might not be very good at forward thermic that, launches. That's exactly the case. Most, most of the guys here uh, wouldn't wouldn't know a thermic cycle if it hit them in the face, and are completely rubbish at forward launches because they never do them. And we have mm-hmm. to force ourselves to do to do forward launches. Next, we discuss people's attitude to flight safety versus performance. I, th- I think actually, if you did a questionnaire and said to people. What's more important to you, safety or, or performance? Mm. They would say safety. Mm. If you then said to them, what wing do you fly? The majority would probably say E and B or E and C. Mm-hmm. And you would say to them, okay, what actually do you achieve in your flying? Mm. And in order to achieve what you currently achieve, what wing do you need to fly? And I can guarantee they could be down one or two classes. Of course. Of course. So what people perceive of their needs, there's always a mismatch between and, and, your and own you know perception. What, and, and you know what causes that? This, this reminds me of something that I used to, I noticed when I was working in a bike shop in North London. And it's just pure ego. 99 <laughs> times out of 100. 
<laughs> 99 <laughs> times out of 100, it's men as well. It's the presence of testosterone that causes the problems. Because let's face it, it's a very, it's a very emotional, personal thing, the wing that you fly. People, people get very profoundly affected by it. Mm, definitely. Same as cycling. Let me take you on to another versus safety thing, which is fun versus safety. Ah, yes, yes. And I think that's at the the sort of the heart of a lot of things we've been speaking about this mm-hmm. evening. Mm-hmm. That people think that you can't have one without the other. I disagree. Completely. Uh, disagree. Sorry, that you can have one with the other. Sorry, I'm not phrasing this very well. But they <laughs> think that the two things are polar opposites. Yeah, they think you know. that, 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 that when, the, when the, the safety demands get high enough, all the fun factor goes out. Um, and I, I fundamentally disagree with that. Um, I do too. I mean, I don't, you know, if you say to somebody, you know, we should have a safe flight, you don't mean we should have a boring flight. Exactly. You know, the, the two things are not mutually exclusive as far as I'm concerned. And in fact, what should be people's attitude, in my view, is that the safer the flight, the more fun you had. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so you've landed with a big smile on your face, you can go to the pub and you can bore everybody to tears with your exactly. great flight. Exactly. I will, I will um, declare... What would I say? A weakness in my own attitude here, though, which is that I basically loathe theme parks and roller coasters because what they do is they give you these artificial thrills. And I really don't get that much of a kick out of them because I know that they're so over engineered and I know that it's simply impossible for me to be injured on one of these things. And I can't get excited about it because I know I'm safe all the time. Mm. And that kind of goes against everything that I preach around flight safety. Having said that, though, one of the things I love about paragliding is the fact that my own safety rests in my own hands. Um, it's the sense of responsibility and it's the constant knowledge while, while I'm airborne that if I mess up, I'm going to hurt myself. Um, but I mitigate that. I mean, it's all for me. It's all about having a perceived risk. It's about feeling that little that little metallic bite of a perceived risk whilst at the same time having that smug feeling deep down in my belly and knowing that I'm completely safe. For me, it's that moment where I pick up an embedded thermal on the ridge. I I cruise out upwind and it's ragged and the wing's going all over the place. And I'm, I'm nervous because it's active air and I might be a bit rusty, but still I'll feel that little, that little surge of adrenaline. And then I'll look down and put my hand on the reserve handle and I'll say very often out loud to myself, it's okay, you're flying. I look up at my wing and I say to myself out loud, I say, you're flying a certified wing, your wing's in great shape, you've just repacked your reserve, your harness is great, you know what you're doing, the weather's perfect, we're fine here. And then I put the fear away and I go and dig into the air. And that's my balance, that's where I establish the balance because once I've... Once I've established my little sandbox of safety by reassuring myself that my wing is safe, my harness is safe, my chest straps at the right setting and everything is right. I know that I then have the freedom. I've created my space in which I can really whack it into the thermal. And I know that if I if I do something stupid, I'm going to be fine because I'm, I'm, I'm far enough off the ground and I'll I'll be able to recognize a, a, a spin coming on or whatever. And for me. It's it's the safety that creates the space to have the fun, and the fun stops when I stop feeling safe. If you see what I mean. Not everybody's like that, though. 
one of the biggest things, which is which is one, I, I perceive it as one of the greatest failings within the paragliding community, is how little we are learning from other sports. Yes, paragliding is, is I'm not going to say unique, but it's a special sport because it's so accessible and and it's. It's just very special, and all the pilots will know why it's special. But there are plenty of other sports that have been through this learning curve of safety. I mean, not least hang gliding, for example. And all the lessons have frankly been been written in other people's blood. But what I see around me is, and, and, and I'm, I'm not talking at all about where I am. I'm talking about from the stuff that I read on, on, on the net. I see people who don't look beyond the domain of paragliding for example they could be looking at hang gliding they could be looking at sailplanes they could be looking at all the different types of aviation and then you can start looking at all the other potentially risky um sports like for example rock climbing or caving or downhill mountain biking or skiing i mean some of these sports are really really mainstream for example skiing or snowboarding and they're they're big enough and old enough that all the safety issues have been ironed out uh, and it's a bit of a tragedy that paragliding is so wrapped up in itself. It hasn't looked at these other sports and learned the mass messages and, and learned the lessons that these other well, sports I mean, have gone through. A classic, classic example of that is GoPros on helmets. Because GoPros are relatively new. How you know, long ago was this resolved in, in skydiving? 15, <laughs> 20 years ago? Yeah. yeah you know, exactly. And you, you have a, a knife to cut through your your chin strap and you know you've got helmets where the camera's embedded so that you can't get any snagging but yeah it was resolved as you say 15 20 years ago a generation ago (laughs) yeah and the fact that people are now hurting themselves seriously hurting themselves in paragliding is a tragedy so the question is this what can be done about that if you were for example in in charge of the the spanish association or, or the bhpa or ushpa or whatever what would you do to address that issue? <laughs> Tough question. <laughs> I, I don't know, because if I knew the answer, I'd probably be quite rich. <laughs> I don't know. Exactly. I don't know. I don't exactly. know. This is the, the biggest difficulty about flight safety, because it's a hearts and minds issue. To, to, to have an effect, you need to get into people's hearts and minds. You need to literally change the way they see the world, change the way they think. And that's spectacularly difficult. But hang on a minute. There's a whole industry which, for which the very raison d'etre, the, the very job is to change people's minds, change people's uh, perceptions. And that's called the advertising industry, the marketing industry. And the reason why we're not using that in paragliding is exactly the same reason why so much other stuff happens in paragliding. There simply isn't the money. We're a tiny industry and there ain't the money floating around for the for the national organizations to go and make these beautiful, great safety promotional campaigns and, and get the message out to everybody. Because if you say to a marketing organization or an advertising organization and say, look, I have this really, really important message. I need to get it out to 200,000 people in this specific environment. They should bite your arm off at that. They'll say, yeah, great. That's a lovely contract. I can do that. But it's going to cost. And the paragliding industry just can't afford to do that. Probably combined with the fact that they don't necessarily feel the pain of the absence of that solution, if you see what I mean. I, uh, for example, how many how many paragliding companies have gone out of business because of all the accidents to do with GoPros? It's probably none. It's complex, isn't it? Well, but it goes exactly back to what you said earlier, horses to water. Yes. Because, you know, I hear 
these days, you know, people start saying, oh, you know, our national magazine is just full of accident stuff and I don't want to hear all the safety stuff again and again and again. You know, I just want to see some, some lovely holiday reports and some good news and some, some you know, something that, well, something that represents the fun that we all have when we're flying. So, yeah, no, nobody wants to have it like shoved down their throat every two minutes. On the other hand, there are very, very important messages about, like you say, the fact that it's been learnt elsewhere and we shouldn't, nobody should have these accidents really. So, yeah, it's the horse to water problem. The one big powerful thing that we have available to us, and it's what—it's only in the last sort of seven, eight years, which is social media, because it's it's everywhere. That effectively gets around the need for organisations to go and buy that expensive marketing message. When you can get it out there on Facebook, then it's it's just fantastic. Next, Tim talks about the thread on Paragliding Forum, where did they discuss the perfect pilot? It was a few years ago, there was a thread where people were discussing safety and what it would take to get safer. And I, I came up with the idea of what it would take to make the perfect paraglider pilot. So what we're talking about is a pilot who can fly any wing in any conditions and be completely safe. In other words, a, a thoroughly, completely competent paraglider pilot. And, and, and if you think about what that would take, then you're going to have a long structured training program right from zero all the way through to to the sort of competition level. Uh, you need to have the possibility of failure in there. Then you need to have regular retraining with the emphasis on, on currency. So you're you're constantly learning new things and you're constantly refreshing your old skills. So it's all your, your whole skill set is current all the time. Then you do a, you would probably do an SIV course every month on every class of wing. Uh, and, and the short answer is it's possible to make a paraglider pilot that, that is that competent and, and that incredibly safe. But goodness me, it's going to be expensive. Uh, and that's the limiting factor. You know, there's only a finite amount of money that goes into paragliding training, which is why we have the structure that we have, not the perfect situation that I've just described. Basically, what you're talking about is somebody who does it professionally. I think when you look at it from the opposite end it suddenly brings into focus why our training structures are the way they are, why it's so imperfect, why the culture of safety isn't ingrained. And, you know, frankly, it's because we're doing it on a small budget and, and people expect it to be on a small budget because paragliding is sold as an easy way into the air for people on a, on a relatively low budget, which is fine. It's great. But for every person or school that encourages somebody into the sport with that byline, for every person that says, no, come along, just just buy the gear, take the course, get everyone, it's really good fun. Yes, they have the right to encourage people into the sport, but I'd like to think they also have the responsibility to remind those people what they're taking on when they get into the sport because it it's not like snowboarding and it, it's it's not like mountain biking because in snowboarding and mountain biking, you don't get more than three metres off the ground. That's the big thing. I was just thinking of going back to one of my first questions to you, which was about what difference carrying passengers makes. Mm. And it's amazing to me to think about the difference in the cost and the duration of training and mm. the, the whole safety views that we have about tandem flying. Mm -hmm. Like When it's just us, it could be like cheap, cheerful, don't spoil my fun kind of thing. Exactly. And yet, as soon as you mention tandem and responsibility for a passenger, everybody's like, got to be super safe, got to be super safe. Mm -hmm. And if we actually applied some of those attitudes that we have to tandem flying mm. to our own individual flying, mm. then maybe as a sport we would be slightly safer. And this, I completely agree. And this is where the whole attitude thing comes into it because 
morally speaking, and I know it sounds really grand to talk about morals, but, but when you're talking about safety, you're talking about people's lives and people's futures. So you kind of can't avoid the moral issues here. Morally, there's basically no difference at all between flying a solo and, 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 and flying a tandem. Let's think about the case when you're flying a solo. Everybody who's flying a solo is still somebody's son or daughter. They still have friends and family. I would be very surprised if there's a paraglider pilot out there in the world that doesn't have any parents or doesn't have a partner, you know, whose, whose loss would not be felt by anyone. The perceived reason why they take extra care when they're taking a tandem is that they want to prevent the tragedy and the grief of the passenger being seriously injured or killed. But what they're forgetting is that if you're seriously injured or killed when you're flying a solo, there's no less tragedy or grief involved. It's just that the perception is different. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a good example of that. I've, I've realised how much grief and heartache I caused mm. lots of people around me when I had my crash and the amount of time that they had to invest mm. in order to make me better. You know, I mean, we should see the implications and the impact that we have in, in mm. if, we're, if we don't try our utmost to be safe in flying. Mm. We should see that for ourselves as well. And finally, we're all involved in flight safety in one way or another. Anyone listening to this podcast already has a huge head start and arguably doesn't need help with flight safety. But what they can do is gently and persuasively explain the key messages to the horses that won't drink or don't even know they're thirsty. That flight safety is not something that people opt in or out of. The moment you strap a wing on or even turn up at a flying site or even just talk to a paraglider pilot, you become affected by the Holy Spirit of flight safety because your actions and words will affect other people and other people's words and actions will possibly affect you. Many thanks, Tim, and great talking to you. If you would like to listen to other podcasts on a range of issues to do with paragliding, you can do so at www.theparaglider.com. If you enjoy our podcasts, webcasts and articles on the Paraglider, please consider making a donation to support us with our costs for hosting and also to support us in making great new resources. We've got lots of ideas for new podcasts, webcasts and articles and we'd be happy to produce them, but we need your support. You can find the donate button on any of the podcast pages on theparaglider.com as well as on the main index page. Thank you.